Welcome to the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast, brought to you by the University of New South Wales, Sydney. This series explores the impact of COVID-19 on various aspects of women's health and wellbeing. Hello, I'm Professor Eileen Baldry, and you're about to listen to a specially curated episode of the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Ruth McCausland, to discuss the well-being of women in the criminal justice system during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. McCausland is Senior Research Fellow on a number of justice-related projects and Director of Evaluation for the UINRLE Partnership between UNSW and the Darawa Elders Group in Walgut at UNSW. Her research focuses on young people, women and girls, people with disabilities and Aboriginal people in the criminal justice system, and the social determinants of justice. Thank you so much for joining me, Ruth. Let's first set the scene and the context for our exploration of the impact of COVID-19 on the well-being of women in the criminal justice system. And we'll start by setting the scene around what you see as the broad determinants or drivers of women becoming enmeshed in the criminal justice system in the first place. Well, thank you, Eileen, um, for inviting me to speak with you today. I think it's important to note that when we're talking about um, women in the criminal justice system, we know that while women are a small minority of the total prison population, there's been an alarming increase in their numbers over the last decade or so, in particular of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And so when we think about the determinants or the drivers of women becoming enmeshed in the criminal justice system, That increase in numbers of women is not necessarily about increased crime rates, but it's about other factors that have emerged in recent years. It's not because women are committing more serious offences either. A growing proportion of women held in prison uh, or in contact with the justice system generally are there for fairly minor offences, breach of justice offences, so kind of breach of parole, etc. But drug-related offences is significant as well. Um, And what we know is that changes to bail laws mean that more women have ended up in custody, in in prison custody. A third of women in prison custody are there um, on remand, so as yet to be sentenced. And what we know is that prison itself is criminogenic. So the driving factors that lead women to ending up in contact with the justice system are exacerbated by time spent in custody. What we know is that prisoners generally are very disadvantaged sections of our population, but women in prison on the whole are even more disadvantaged than the men in custody. The majority of women in prison are from very poor backgrounds, um, disadvantaged contexts. Many have also very sadly and distressingly experienced significant uh, abuse and trauma and violence in their lives. Many women in prison have been diagnosed with mental health disorders such as depression, borderline personality disorder, Many also have cognitive impairment, such as intellectual disability, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and may have acquired brain injury. Levels of diagnosis of women with disability is high, but we also know the significant number of women in custody with undiagnosed disability. We know that alcohol and other drug dependencies are very common amongst women in prison and are often connected to women's offending behaviour. Another significant factor that we see is homelessness and housing instability for a large number of women in custody. And certainly their experience of going to prison makes that more of an issue. They're more destabilised in terms of their family and caring relationships and their housing. They tend to have very low levels of educational outcomes and minimal employment histories. And 
as ever, we should acknowledge um, Aboriginal women are being are particularly disadvantaged, a high proportion of whom have mental and cognitive disability, drug and alcohol issues, and, and make up about a third of women in, in prison. So in New South Wales, specifically what we know about women in, in prison, all of those um, sort of background factors, we also know that a significant number of them have been in an abusive relationship and a large proportion of them also have children under the age of 18. So we also know that about a third of women too were released last year into homelessness or unstable accommodation in New South Wales. So what we often see for women in the criminal justice system is a criminalisation of disadvantage of poverty. But for Indigenous women in particular, we see the criminalisation of being Aboriginal in and of itself in terms of their backgrounds and experiences and the policing of Aboriginal communities, which we'll come to and discuss more in detail later. But overall, I guess, as a society, what we've increasingly seen is, is prison as an acceptable place for disadvantaged women and even as a way of providing them with rehabilitation and treatment. But rather than providing rehabilitation, the majority of women in prison cycle in and out on remand or short sentences, unable to access the support and services they need, which undermines their capacity for, to care for children and other family members, and it makes it harder for them to find housing and jobs. This compounds their disadvantage. Ruth, you've, you've just outlined uh, a most distressing picture of determinants, drivers uh, of women in general, not just in this COVID-19 uh, crisis, but of women in general who are entangled in the criminal justice system. So you've given us a sense of these broad and persistent factors that coalesce to entangle girls and women, and we haven't really mentioned girls, but I would like you to perhaps comment on the flow from juvenile justice for girls um, into adult prison, but that, that entangle women and girls in criminal justice. And so now let's look specifically at uh, the merging or the intersection of women's more complex needs, including their health needs, the conditions in prison or police detention and COVID-19. What particular impacts are there on women's well-being in this very complicated and um, difficult situation? Yes, I think it's important to think about girls too in this context, Eileen, because a significant proportion of women in the criminal justice system as adults did have contact with the juvenile justice system, the youth justice system, or certainly with police as girls and young women. And a number of them uh, also were in the out-of-home care system. That's another important factor that we should mention, which is many of them were known as children, girls at risk of harm as young people. In fact, of this, instead of the state providing the protection and the support that they required often led to further criminalisation and engagement with the justice system. But certainly that early contact with police is significant and it's an important dimension when we're thinking about the impact of COVID-19 in terms of the punitive and police-led response. In terms of the health dimensions of COVID-19, we know that women in the criminal justice system, and particularly we know most about girls and women in custody, youth justice and adult prisons, uh, because of the screening that happens when they are in custody. I mean, often perversely, girls and women are getting access to diagnoses or medication that they don't get in the community because of inadequate health and other social supports. But what we do know from the data is that women in prison 
have more complex health needs um, than other girls and women. They're living in overcrowded, in unsanitary conditions and unable to practice the kind of advice that we're receiving from public health experts around practicing social distancing, regular hand washing. They're not able to practice these in overcrowded custodial arrangements and so therefore facing increased vulnerability both in terms of the control that they have to practice the sorts of health measures that we're all being recommended to practice but equally they're starting out with more complex health needs that all of which we know leads to people facing increased vulnerability to transmission and once again I'll note Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women being particularly disadvantaged in this context. So we know that those with chronic health issues are at greater risk of harm and possibly death in they get the virus. Now we know that there is no particular cases identified in New South Wales at least of women in custody with COVID-19. However, what we know internationally where the virus is more widespread is that custodial environments are of particular concern and that once there is transmission within prisons, it's very difficult to stop it for all the reasons mentioned earlier. This is very similar for people in homeless situations and unstable housing in terms of their capacity to control their environment and practice the sort of public health measures we know make a difference. What we know about girls and women in custody is that, as I mentioned, complex health conditions are more likely to be spokers to have recent histories of illicit drug use, to test positive to hepatitis C, double the rate of mental health issues as male prisoners even, but yet significantly less likely to have consulted a doctor in the previous 12 months. This is New South Wales data that we have access to. They're in custody for shorter periods, so able, being able to access necessary treatment and support while in prison is also a challenge. We also know that psychological as well as physical health issues are likely to be linked to previous victimisation from an early age, common histories of family violence and sexual assault. So what we see, which I think is particularly important to keep in mind when we're thinking about the wellbeing of women in the criminal justice system during this health pandemic, is that women are often denied bail, not because they are a risk to the community because they are considered at risk, including in situations where they've got no access to safe accommodation in the community. Prisons are seen as the sort of safer option in various paternalistic ways, in particular, I think, for girls and women. I mean, aside for this being a real indictment on us as a community in terms of substituting custody for adequate social supports, this approach holds even less merit amidst a health pandemic where an outbreak to occur in a custodial environment leaving vulnerable women less rather than more safe. We know that many girls and women in the justice system have experienced domestic and family violence and homelessness. And what we know from emerging data and research is that both of these elements can exacerbate, be exacerbated during this pandemic. So maybe just talk a little more about Aboriginal women and girls. You've already painted a really strong picture that Aboriginal women are not only massively overrepresented in criminal justice in prisons, but also that they have higher risks of, of other issues that are going to impact them, particularly perhaps during COVID-19. And, and so what are those extra risks and what sorts of, of things across the criminal justice system, including police and courts and, and, and prison, pertain here? Yeah, thanks, Arlene. I think it's useful to start responding to your question by saying there have been many strong 
uh, voices coming from First Nations communities and Aboriginal women in particular speaking out about the particular implications for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and families and individuals, particularly those in custody. There's been long, a long history of advocacy um, coming from many Aboriginal leaders and advocates, particularly family members of those who have died in custody. Because I guess what we are seeing in prison, if we may start at that end, is the use of solitary confinement um, within custody as a kind of public health measure, but of significant concern being raised from family members and other advocates about the potential for deaths in custody, for a lack of oversight or connection of people in prison to family members and other supports and advocates. The great concern of, of Aboriginal people being at greater risk of dying in custody. And we have seen, even though we had a Royal Commission, which reported in 1991 about Aboriginal deaths in custody, we have continued to see Aboriginal deaths in custody at a continue, despite where there have been some measures put in place, we haven't seen full implementation of those recommendations. And the limitations of the criminal justice system in responding to this critical issue is something that we're really experiencing at the moment in terms of the lack of oversight or strategies put in place to particularly respond to the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in contact with the criminal justice system. As I said, Aboriginal women and girls chronically and disastrously overrepresented at all points of the criminal justice system uh, contact with police. I guess we know that Aboriginal people and communities are already over police. You and I, Eileen, are involved with some work in the remote town of Walgett, where we know of a town and a community which is predominantly Aboriginal, uh, more than 2,000 people, there are 40 police permanently stationed there. The level of surveillance and policing that happens there is disproportionate to the population. And also many of the issues that are responded to by police are actually health and wellbeing issues. What we know is that the response to COVID in New South Wales in particular has been very much police-led in terms of enforcing social distancing and other regulations to this health pandemic. It's been very punitive. And what we have seen is that the public health response to enforcement of those regulations involving a quite punitive approach by police and fines being issued, the potential even for prison terms, has not necessarily been in areas where we have seen the highest rates of transmission, like Sydney's eastern suburbs, for example. We've seen the enactment of a more punitive response in areas where there are no cases yet of COVID-19. So the concerns at the moment, particularly for Aboriginal women and girls and families and communities, are about further criminalisation and exacerbation of the high levels of contact with the criminal justice system for that community. I think there's some concern expressed by, as I said, many Aboriginal advocates, lawyers and others about the implementation of social distancing regulations being kind of business as usual with a heavy police presence in regional and remote areas in particular, where there's already in those contexts a normalised reliance on the use of the police to respond particularly to at-risk young people or people who are homeless with drug and alcohol issues. What we see is that in the absence of resourcing and support for community-led responses, and we know that the Aboriginal community controlled health sector has been doing excellent work that in fact the rest of the country could be learning from, the massive concern I think in regards to the already high levels of Aboriginal girls and women in the justice system is that this current 
dynamic will will worsen that rather than actually enable community-led responses that might lead to a health and well-being response. Mm. So what we're seeing here, exacerbations, uh, that you've used that word a number of times, of, of what already has been happening and what has been happening for a long time. And so just thinking about how how that pertains to the group that you've mentioned uh, quite a number of times, and that is um, people with disability, women and girls with disability. We know there's a Royal Commission into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability that is happening at the moment across Australia. And, and that commission has asked Australian governments to ensure that people with disabilities are supported, uh, especially during that time, because they are more vulnerable um, and, and at greater risk. And if you're pointing out that there is a very high rate of women and girls, as well as others, men, but women and girls with mental and cognitive disability in criminal justice systems, how does that play out in regard to their risk around COVID-19? I think it's a really significant concern, Eileen, and um, there's a number of human rights and other advocacy organisations who are already very concerned about the overrepresentation of people with mental and cognitive disability in prison in Australia. And you and I have been involved in research, Eileen, which has looked specifically at the, the higher rates of people with disability in the criminal justice system, but also the higher rates of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability and the exacerbation of inequality specifically in that area. The Royal Commission has come out very strongly in calling for people to provide information around shedding light on the experience of people with disability in both in the, the kind of emergency planning and response phase that we're experiencing at the, at the moment, but also in its work around thinking about the experience of people with disability in the criminal justice system more generally. Now, the Royal Commission has put a call out to Australian governments to particularly be paying attention around people with disability in closed environments in segregated settings. They haven't necessarily named custodial environments, although we know that's a matter of significant concern. I guess what we know is that there are very high rates of people with diagnosed disability in prisons in contact with the criminal justice system. We also know from our research that there's a significant number of people in contact with the criminal justice system and specifically women and girls with undiagnosed levels of disability. Now, there's issues with diagnosis. There's lack of access to professionals, particularly for people in regional remote areas. There's misdiagnosis. There can be lack of recognition. Or amongst Aboriginal children with disability, they can be seen through a lens of kind of poor behaviour where there's a lot of racism informing those assumptions. There can be underdiagnosis due to cultural bias in testing. But even for those people, Aboriginal people, women, girls with mental and cognitive disability who have received diagnoses, what we know is that those diagnoses don't necessarily lead to support, appropriate supports in the community or in custody or early intervention in the ways that we would hope. And this is particularly for girls and women from disadvantaged backgrounds, as mentioned earlier. Now, I think a lot of people uh, think the NDI, introduction of the NDIS has probably got a long way to supporting people with disability in ways that are, that are greatly improved from the way that we might have treated people with disability in the past, except 
what we know is that the NDIS only supports a small proportion of people with disability and the particular group of people that we're talking about today, girls and women cycling in and out of custody, having regular contact with police, having their housing and relationships disrupted but not actually getting the kind of support that they need either in custody or certainly not in the community is um, a significant concern. One of the things that we know that um, has happened already um, in response to COVID-19 is a sort of shutting down or a locking down of face-to-face -face connections and support that might exist. Um, we know that lockdowns and lack of free flow of information and inability of family members or, or other supporters to visit people in custody to see them or provide support is putting people with mental and cognitive disability at far greater risk, that we really know that closed systems do not work well in the interests of already vulnerable women and girls in the con in, with mental and cognitive disability in the criminal justice system, that independent oversight of facilities and free flow of information is absolutely critical. So I think there's particular concerns for those who are attuned to or aware of the issues relating to women with mental and cognitive disability in the criminal justice system, that this response deepens that inequality and the potential for further abuse and violence, which is such a devastatingly common experience of women and girls with disability. Ruth, you've already started to point to some of the things that could be initiated to address this. And so what are some of the actions and changes that would help reduce these serious health and wellbeing risks and, and the consequences for women and girls in criminal justice? Well, I do think um, at the moment what we're seeing is coming to the fore inequality and discrimination and unacceptable circumstances for many vulnerable people in our, in our community really come under the spotlight in light of COVID-19. We're seeing significant problems that have been entrenched um, systemically for some time in Australia. Poverty, access to justice, issues around equitable public health. These are magnified at the moment. We're being pushed to think about how we can respond to these problems with extra resources and urgency. We're acknowledging that community, that the health of our community matters, that, that we're all interconnected in terms of our well-being. And I think it's useful to think about this pandemic as enabling us to rethink assumptions and values and practices that we hold. I think Australia must, like other countries, join in radically rethinking our dependence on prisons and police as a way of managing social problems. And in particular, in the way that we have seen this significant increase in the hyper-incarceration of girls and women in particular, Aboriginal women being the fastest growing group in prison. What we know is that there are excellent models and research that and practice that can show us how we can radically rethink that status quo that is unacceptable to anyone who starts to really engage with the detail of who we incarcerate and why. We urgently need community-based options that are women-centred, that are holistic, because as I've mentioned, we know that the complex health and social needs of women are, are not adequately met by siloed service provision or programs, as in just responding to mental health or just to drug and alcohol or just specifically certain aspects of disability. A holistic response that can really deal 
with understanding the trauma and the complex support needs of women who are otherwise going in and out of prison on remand or short sentences in the absence of that kind of community intervention and support. We definitely need better accommodation and housing and this current health crisis has certainly brought that into stark relief. We particularly need culturally competent services that are focused on the needs and experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And as I mentioned earlier, the Aboriginal community controlled health sector is really leading the way in this kind of community-led health response in communities across New South Wales. We know that services run by women for women, including by Aboriginal women for Aboriginal women, are able to do this, are doing this in many places across New South Wales and the country. And we also know that they're doing that in ways that are much more cost effective. We know that it costs more than $100,000 to keep a woman in prison each year. And we know that if just a fraction of that money was invested in the kind of community support we know works, makes a difference for women, that addresses those complex health needs, early trauma, and is actually genuinely community-led, providing general alternatives for women to reconnect with family, to raise their children and to have meaningful lives in which they can thrive in the community, that this is the time to be thinking about that. Well, look, there is a fantastic call to government, to institutions across our, our country to do something far more radical and positive in supporting women and girls to once stay out of prison and, and using this COVID-19 pandemic as a leverage in a way to do that. Thank you so much, Ruth, for joining me on our Women's Wellbeing Academy discussion uh, regarding the impact of COVID-19 on the health and well-being of women in the criminal justice system. It's been a really important and in-depth discussion and insight into this area and into what we can do much better. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. For more information about this podcast, our guests and upcoming episodes, please visit the UNSW Equity, Diversity and Inclusion website.